This episode is sponsored by Blue Fairy. Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded in 2002. With virtual offices in Burbank, California, and Birmingham, Alabama, Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer through research, education, and advocacy. Learn more about Blue Fairy and Adrian Wilson's liver cancer journey at bluefairy.org. Spelled B L U E F A E R Y dot O R G. On this episode, we have Andrea Wilson Woods. Andrea became guardian of her eight year old sister Adrian at the age of 22 and raised her until her diagnosis of liver cancer in their last 147 days together. That time frame is the name of a memoir Andrea wrote of the experience. She also started a nonprofit and recently launched Cancer University, a resource to guide newly diagnosed cancer patients and their families. Well, uh, Andrea, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, you're in Birmingham, Alabama at the moment, uh, yes. which is a, a city where you spent a portion of your youth. Correct. Um, but you were, uh, why don't we talk about that a little bit, kind of where you were born, where you started out, and then moving to, to Birmingham. Sure. So I was born in Wichita, Kansas. I think we lived there all of six months. So my parents were in the Air Force when they met, and I'm an Air Force brat, so we moved a lot. And then after they got divorced, my mother and I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, because she's from Alabama. And then my sister, who is technically my half-sister, um, Adrian, uh, was born in Birmingham. Got you. And how old were you when you moved to Birmingham? I was 13 when we moved to Birmingham. What was it like going to high school in Birmingham? You know, I was very fortunate because I went to a charter school, and now everyone knows my high school, but back then no one really did. It's called the Alabama School of Fine Arts, and um, it's basically fame. I loved it. It was it was like I finally found my my people. And um, actually, the first year I lived in the dorm until my mom got really settled. We had a very large, I'm using air quotes now, large graduating class um, at that time, and it was 35 people. Got you. Now, I would have guessed you would have uh, been drawn to the writing portion uh, of, of that curriculum. I was a dancer. I was a ballet dancer for 17 years. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so after you went to quote-unquote fame, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where did you go? Well, I knew I didn't want to stay in Birmingham, and by that time, my dad and stepmother lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and I wanted to be a little closer to my dad, and I also wanted to be as far away from my mother as possible, so I um, applied for schools uh, to go to college in California. USC gave me the biggest financial aid package, and so um, my mother told me, um, I can't believe I'm saying this, I usually don't tell this story publicly, but my mother told me that I was her property and I could not leave the state of Alabama until I turned 18 and my birthday's at the end of the summer. And so I just planned the summer. I saved my money. I worked really hard. And as soon as I turned 18, four days later, I packed up my car and uh, drove across the country, um, said hello to my dad and stepmother in Phoenix and, uh, and moved in and went to USC. I love that. That is such a great, great story. 
um yeah your mother totally fueled your fire <laughs> she did she did and the only thing about leaving alabama that was hard is by that time adrian was four years old yeah. and up until that point i had done everything for my mother i always joked that i was her housewife i mean i took care of my sister i took care of the bills i did all the grocery shopping i did absolutely everything and so i was really concerned what was going to happen when i was no longer there you had to grow up very fast yeah you had a lot of um responsibilities on you at a very young age even prior to adrian's uh, birth i have to imagine yeah i i I didn't realize until later that my mother had a drug problem, a prescription drug problem, but still a drug problem nevertheless. And um, I didn't, I didn't realize how different my mother was from other mothers. I, I just, I didn't get it. You know, when that's your normal as a kid and you have nothing else to compare it to, yeah. then how do you know? Yeah, of course. Of course. Is your mother still with you? Uh, you mean alive? Yeah. Yes. But we don't have a relationship. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. As soon as I said that, I recalled your video on euphemisms regarding death. Mm -hmm. That's one of them. Yeah, that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if I should say my bad or not. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> you're more, your life circumstances have made you more aware than a lot of others. And a lot of others would just, I would get this negative remote emotional reaction if I didn't express it in a very <laughs> sort of uh, gentle way. So, right. Um, yeah. You can, you can say die. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so out of curiosity, is she still in the Birmingham area or has she moved? Elsewhere? She lives in the town that she was raised in, um, which is about 80 miles from Birmingham. Okay. A right. small town. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so you make your way to California and you're studying at USC. Mm -hmm. um, uh, did you finish your degree before Adrian came out to visit you for those two weeks? Yeah, I did. I finished my degree early. So I, I finished school a semester early and, um, and, and, you know, and I came back, you know, to visit and, and stuff and um, Christmas and some summers and, um, and then Adrian came out to visit me for what was supposed to be a two week vacation, a Christmas vacation. And that turned into a permanent stay when our mother decided she didn't want to be a mother anymore. I mean, she told me not to put Adrian back on the plane for the return trip. And at the time I didn't put it together, but that was three days before my mother's 50th birthday. So I think it was a combination, sort of a midlife crisis. I mean, my mother certainly had Adrian later in life. And also um, by that time, my mother's drug problem had really gotten out of control. She had always been very highly functional and she worked as a nurse. But um, about, I want to say six to eight months before that trip happened, my mother had gotten caught um, at work, so at, at the hospital, uh, shooting up morphine. And she had gotten fired on the contingency that she could get rehired if she went into a treatment program because it's quite common for doctors and nurses to get addicted to prescription drugs. I mean, it's very, it's very common. And she refused, and so she, she got her nursing license revoked and didn't get it back. And so after that, she was sort of in a, a downward spiral at that point. Of course, in this pivotal phone call, she's not sharing any of this with you. 
No, I knew. I, I, I knew about all of that. And in fact, I had been sending her money that year. Um, wow. and, and yeah, I knew. I knew things were really going downhill fast. And she had been moving Adrian around. At that point, Adrian was in third grade and had been in three or four different schools. Um, it, it was, I knew. I knew it was, but I was genuinely surprised when she said, you know, don't send her back. And at that point, I just told my mom, um, I said, well, if I take her now, I'm not, I'm not going to give her back. I will fight you. And that's what eventually ended up happening is I went to court and sued her for full legal custody and, and won. That's great. Um, you became her legal guardian. Um, how old was she when that happened, when that got finalized? Uh, that was actually a couple years later. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was to our benefit. And by our, I mean me and Adrian's because in California, um, the older the child is, the more say the child actually gets, sure. um, in the decision. And so that worked out really well. Yeah. I know that there's always a, a before and an after is that's how you kind of think about time. So, um, share with us the before. Mm-hmm. So Adrian's with you, she's eight. Mm-hmm. And then up until she's 15 and the eventual diagnosis, what was life like? I mean, you nailed it, <laughs> right? It really is before and after. I mean, people have been through that. It's, it's almost, it's black and white. I always call it the black and white because I feel like life most of the time is really in the gray, but that is such a black and white moment that you never forget. Um, be, before cancer, um, I mean, Adrian, we, we struggled. We had our ups and downs. Um, she had a very tough time in middle school, and I think that's a tough time for a lot of girls. Um, she went through a very severe, severe depression. Um, at one point, she was suicidal. I was able to find her an amazing therapist who was, just became sort of a regular part of our lives and um, who really saved Adrian's life. And, and so, but she was coming out of that. She had started high school. She was really sort of, figuring out who she was and she stopped worrying about what other people thought. She was an honor student. She had a 4.0 you know, GPA and um, it, she was blossoming. She really was. And, and it was really nice to see. And she still had kind of those moments of depression, but she was just doing so well. And, and, and I was doing better, a little bit better financially. Things were a little bit more stable. Um, Cause at any given time I was working two or three jobs and I had started teaching to be on her schedule. And, um, and I remember so clearly because uh, Sunday was mother's day and, um, and she had made a big deal about it. It was really sweet and gotten me a card and this little candle. Um, and, and then Wednesday comes along, and, and, and the day before, I mean, mind you, she'd been fine. The only symptoms she had of anything um, was she had some acid reflux, and she was chewing Tums like they were candy. Uh, based on your book, you, you thought it was related to the Coachella experience. Yes, well, she did, but uh, that day I came home, Wednesday, May 16th, and found her on the living room floor, curled up in a fetal position, saying she had pain. Um, we went to her pediatrician, and yeah, Adrian thought it was because of Coachella. She had been there two weeks before with my boyfriend, who was very much a father figure for her, and he had complained of his ribs being bruised because they had been up front against this metal railing. Um, a music festival, festival like that is the last place I want to be, but that was something they did together, and, um, and so that's what they thought it was. I mean, we saw her doctor, her pediatrician. He sent us to the ER. Um, 
when they heard about Coachella, they thought maybe she had internal bleeding, and so they did a CAT scan, and and that's what we were waiting on was, oh, okay, so this is really bad, but this is probably what it is. And when the ER doctor came in, I knew whatever it was, it was not internal bleeding. I knew it was going to be a lot worse just from the look on his face. And, and then he wouldn't look at Adrian, um, and he wouldn't say her name. And he said she has tumors in her liver and lungs, just like that. And that is that black and white moment for us. I mean, the minute he said that, our lives changed forever. She did not go back to school physically. Um, I did not go back to work. Um, I mean, that was it. And we were at Burbank, um, the only hospital in Burbank, and they didn't see um, pedi uh, peds, as they call them. So they set up a transfer to Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And I mean, that was nine o'clock at night on a Wednesday night, and she was, we went to Children's, and she was checked in, and a week later, she was doing chemo, and she had stage four liver cancer, and it was so fast. Man, it, it was fast. Well, and um, I imagine especially the 147 days that followed the diagnosis, yeah. um, and um you know, you capture it so well in your book. It's um, you. you're very powerful as a as a writer. It uh, it captures the nuance of the moment. It builds the the tension and um, yeah. And 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 you um, you have, you have micro doses of humor in there, as, <laughs> yeah. kind of marveling at um, uh, kind of the mystery and wonder that is life. And like, how did we end up here? Yeah. Um, I know you've shared this story so many times, but I, I'm going to, and you've been sharing it as far, and I'm going to ask you to continue to share it, okay. it again, um, because I think it's very potent for um, people listening. Um, and so she's at Children's. Mm -hmm. A week later, she starts chemo. Um, what happens from there? Best option for Adrian would have been in that moment to do a clinical trial. But Adrian had a very adult cancer, and we were at a pediatric hospital. We had, we called him Dr. No. That's why I call him in the book, because he had no bedside manner. And every time we asked him a question, it was always, the answer was always no. Um, and by the time we got a second opinion, you know, and we did, which I always recommend people do at UCLA, um, and we knew we wanted to transfer her care. Uh, it just took so long. Everything was just so frustrating. And if you have stage four of any kind of cancer, you usually don't have time on your side. And so the standard of care at that time um, was chemo, even though, and this was the frustrating part, they knew chemo didn't do anything, anything. It, they just did it because they thought it was better than, than not doing something. And Dr. No, I think, was trying to tell me that in that first sort of parent conference, here's the plan for your child, here's what we're going to do. And the way he was trying to tell me that was he was like, you know, you should do fun things now while she still feels good, like go to Hawaii. But I think he was genuinely trying to tell me that, you know, we have no options here. There are no good options. There's nothing. And I wish he had found a way to say that to me. Um, the words palliative care were never spoken to me, oh, ever. Yeah. I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah. And I was educated. I grew up around doctors and hospitals because our mother was a nurse. And 
So I was somewhat familiar with that world. I wasn't afraid to ask questions, but, but still, I mean, I lacked a lot of knowledge. And, um, but Adrian did go, she underwent four rounds of chemo um, at Children's Hospital. And so our lives just kind of became consumed by her, her chemo and going back and forth from the hospital to doctor's appointments to for white blood cell counts were up. We, she could go out if they weren't, she couldn't. Um, I mean, our lives just revolved around that. And then by the time I was able to convince the insurance to cover a transfer to UCLA, which was a much better experience, um, that's when clinical trials were first brought up. But by that time, four rounds of chemo had just, you know, decimated her immune system. And there were really no good options left anymore. At what point did you have the realization that um, all you could do was comfort Adrian? I lived in a very healthy state of denial because I, I absolutely refused to accept it. Like I just couldn't think about not having a life without her. I mean, she was the most important person to me. I'm going to try not to cry. And I loved her more than I've loved anyone in my whole life. And I loved her unconditionally. And I could not function every day and be the kind of caregiver I needed to be for her if I even even thought that she might die. Like, you know, I couldn't even conceive. When I got this card in the mail to run a marathon for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, I decided to do it and I was scheduled to do a marathon three weeks after Adrian got diagnosed. And I had been training for months. And because I had to stop my training so abruptly, I didn't do the marathon. And I ended up actually doing it a year later oh, after wow. she died. So, I mean, that's how, and how bad the fear was. I thought, well, if I, I'll conquer this fear just by running a marathon. Thank you for sharing that. You're uh, I know that wasn't easy. Um, I, I wonder about the question, um, uh, who cared for the caretaker? Like, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I, I, I think you just pushed a lot of that under the rug and there was no time. So you didn't make time for it. And I, I can completely empathize with this idea of never accepting any other solution or outcome. Yeah. You have a lot of great information on the web and there was one and, and, and I really felt your poignant frustration with how liver cancer is mm -hmm. a highly preventable um, um, incidence of, of cancer. And then you have uh, uh, a brilliant video where you talk about the four instances where it happens. And one of them is related to, um, to uh, cirrhosis and, and liver toxicity. Um, in your book, you share about some of the um, uh, medications um, your mom was giving Adrian. Yeah. Have you ever tied anything to that or felt like maybe that was possibly a cause? Yeah, when, when they saw what they did in Adrian's biopsy, I mean, they were, they were just stunned because especially at that time, Adrian was as far from a typical patient as you could get. I mean, at that, at that time, it was a non-North American male over the age of 50. Um, I mean, it just it wasn't common in the U.S. at all. She had never been outside the country. Um, so they immediately tested her for hepatitis B and C. She had both, um, and they concluded the only way she could have gotten that was from our mother during childbirth. And my sister was born in 1986, and hepatitis C had not been identified or even taken out of the blood supply yet. Mm -hmm. With hepatitis B, they were not testing mothers prenatally as standard of care 
And I even confirmed that with my mother's OBGYN. I tracked him down for the book just for my own edification. Um, and it just wasn't standard of care to, to test mothers. Um, and given my mother's drug use, but also just given her occupation as a nurse, she could have very easily gotten both hip B and hip C. And um, it was just horrible, horrible timing. And then add to that the fact that, as I mentioned in my book, um, my, sis my mother used to give my sister shots on a regular basis that she called vitamins in order to get my sister to fall asleep. And this was after I went off to college. Um, so essentially, my mother either accidentally or inadvertently um, gave my sister hepatitis B and C, and that's what led to her liver cancer. Thanks for sharing that. Um... Uh, I know that those realizations um, uh, were not easy and um, it wasn't easy to share it now. So I do appreciate you doing that. Um, once Adrian died, and it took me a moment to be okay saying that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, your energy was pushed into high gear into a number of arenas. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, I haven't finished your book, so I didn't even realize that you ran a marathon. Um, so um, Adrian passed in October of that year. So the following May, you ran a marathon? I, I did the LA Marathon in March. And, and I didn't really run. I'm not a good runner. <laughs> I just walk really fast. <laughs> yeah, I ended up doing six marathons and one half marathon over four years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Running, running, but not running, just walking super, super fast. A little bit jogging, maybe. 26.2 <laughs> mile aggressive walks. Still aggressive walks. Really I like that. Aggressive walks. <laughs> <laughs> I did LA Marathon four times, Vegas twice, and Vancouver, which was my favorite because it's so beautiful there once. Vancouver is beautiful. Yeah. Um, was this a way of coping with the loss? It, it was, it was also, I had made a commitment, you know, initially to, you know, to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, I had raised these funds and made a commitment to people who had given money to do a marathon. And like I said, I was scheduled to do one, but it was right after Adrian got diagnosed and I had stopped training. And, and so I was like, I have to do what I said I was going to do. And so I just did it almost a year later. How soon after uh, Adrian's death did you launch Blue Fairy? And I, I love the um, uh, the reason for its name. So please. Uh... <laughs> oh, um, so I started Blue Fairy about a year and a half after she died um, as a way to channel my grief because I was I was going into full blown depression. And I for that first year I really tried to hide it and try to do what everyone expected me to do. But I just kind of cracked. I couldn't do it anymore. I was exhausted um, trying to keep up with everyone's expectations of me. And, um, and so I launched Blue Fairy and, and yeah, the name of the organization um, comes from blue is my sister's favorite color. She loved fairies. Um, she liked it spelled F-A-E-R-Y. So that's why the E instead of the I. Um, and when she was diagnosed with um, liver cancer, she had blue hair. And then when she started losing her hair, she got a blue wig to maintain her look, as she called it. And then that summer, she actually bought these blue butterfly wings that she would wear in public. And we started calling her our blue fairy because she, she looked like a fairy. I mean, she looked so 
ethereal, um, especially when she was getting um, sicker, if you will. She was also getting paler, and, and she just looked gorgeous. Um, and she was actually buried in those blue butterfly wings. Wow. Okay. Amazing. And share with us the mission of Blue Fairy. Sure. So Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma, through research, education, and advocacy. And you can learn more at bluefairy, B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y dot org. That's great. And it's still an active organization today. Oh, yes. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so that was your full-time focus um, for a number of years. And then um, you also finished your master's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went back to USC and got my master's in writing. That's fantastic. You also function as a uh, family service specialist at UCLA. I did. I got a job at UCLA and in the pediatrics department working on a research study. Were you the one who communicated the news to your mother about Adrian's death? Wow. Asim, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question. I mean, ever. I don't... Um, no, I did not, and I have no idea who did, but my mom was not invited to the funeral. We made that very clear that she was not invited. Got you. Okay. Um, thanks for, for sharing that. Sure. Good question. You spent, so uh, after you get your master's, you spend a lot of time um, writing. So actually the memoir, uh, the first draft of the memoir, actually the thesis for my master's degree. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. And then I put it down. I was exhausted because that first draft took me the two years for my master's and I, I just didn't want to touch it for a long time. I was, I wanted initially to get it traditionally published, but I got the same feedback over and over from agents that the story was amazing and compelling, the writing was excellent, and it was too sad. Wow. And then nobody wanted to read a sad story. So as far, as far as moving back to Alabama, I had been very unhappy living in L.A. for a couple of years. And um, I got married a few years after Adrian died, and my marriage wasn't going well. One day, I was like, I just need to leave. And between the time I made the decision and the time I left was like six to eight weeks. Wow. And found my husband an apartment. We started selling our belongings, you know, throwing stuff away, donating stuff. I took my cat and drove across the country. Wow. That's phenomenal. Um, that sense of relief you get, that cathartic yeah. sense of making that decision and just executing on it. And it sounds very orderly. Usually separations or breakups like that are messy. Yeah. <laughs> when did the idea for Cancer University first occur to you? Um, that, was, that was about two years ago. I was becoming frustrated with a problem that I saw when I was speaking to cancer patients and caregivers, um, as I've done for many, many years now. I was finding that 90 to 95% of the time, you could give people great information, which I knew my nonprofit had, right, on our specific type of cancer, but people didn't know what to do with the information. And so I had been coaching pro bono patients and caregivers for years, you know, kind of walking them through, well, here's what you need to do next, you know, and, and you know, giving them that support. And um, I'm also a certified coach. And as soon as I became a certified coach, other companies on LinkedIn started trying to recruit me to be a cancer coach, which is a thing. And 
but I didn't want to charge families during the most difficult time in their lives to be a coach, even though I know it's needed. I do know it is. And it was just this sort of problem that ate away at me. I was like, okay, there's, there's something here. And I just, I really just meditated on it and prayed on it. And I was like, there's something I'm not seeing it's needed. And I started thinking about with my sister that moment we heard the words from the ER doctor two days later the biopsy and then boom here you you've got to make a decision here's the treatment plan and the acronyms I call it the alphabet soup of cancer that were thrown all over the place and I felt like I had to go back to school and because I remember buying all these books and I was like oh my god that's at cancer university boom that's that's it and I immediately I, I did what any good entrepreneur would do I <laughs> I first I looked to see if anything like that existed. No, I uh, registered the trademark. I registered the domain name, and then I um, entered the Estella's uh, C3 Prize, which is an international entrepreneurial competition. That year, out of over 160 entries from 21 countries, I got in the top 10. Congratulations! Thank good. you, thank you. And I had nothing but concept at that point. I had a web page. That was it, and. I spoke to the Estelle's executives and didn't make it to the finals because I didn't have anything but the concept. That's great. And then it's also become a part of uh, Startup Health? Yes. Yeah, we joined Startup Health um, at the time of this recording about four months ago. Uh, we're part of Kiwi Tech's startup portfolio as well. And it's been very exciting. Um, certainly difficult, but very exciting. Yeah, I know the Kiwi Tech people well. They're a great group to be involved with. Um, so that's great. Um, Andrea, you talked a little bit about your um, depression uh, mm -hmm. and you've been more open about talking about it. I saw the video that uh, you uh, you placed uh, online and um, oh. it was very moving how you, you know, the preamble to it, how terrified you are to, to put it up. When were you first uh, diagnosed or when did you first begin uh, treating it, uh, taking medication for it? A few years after my sister died. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and then I, uh, I went to therapy for about three to four years while I was writing the first draft of the book. What would you say was the most instrumental in your grieving process? Because you've done these amazing feats. You know, oftentimes, most people don't do anything. Uh, oftentimes, people take up one mission um, but you ran a number of marathons, <laughs> you launched a nonprofit, and you wrote a memoir. Oh, um, really just time. I think I tried to outrun my grief for a very long time. And, and it wasn't really until I just faced it and dealt with it and also just accepted it. Like, I'm, I'm never going to get over that loss, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, and it's it's not um, it's not a bad thing. It's all, it's all right. I mean, a lot of people go through life and they never have that kind of relationship with anyone. So in some ways, I sort of leaned into the grief and it got better. What was the most challenging point of the grieving process? I allowed the grief and the sadness to. Um, mask who I really am 
Yeah, and uh, thank you for saying it that way. Um, you know, you were thrust into this role of responsibility so young. Did you really have a chance to figure out who you were as an adolescent? Uh, that's that's a good question. I didn't know who I was outside of Adrian. Yeah, it took me a long time to figure out who I was. It, it really did. Well, it needed to take time. It, you needed to give it the time, I should say. Yeah. And, um, and it sounds like um, you have. Yeah. Yeah. I just lived my life backwards. I raised a kid in my 20s. I got married in my 30s, right? <laughs> Started a business in my 40s. So that's okay. You know? One of the things I most admired about my sister and I'm most proud of is just how well she handled herself. But she didn't feel sorry for herself. And so that's how I live my life now. It's like every day I kind of check with myself. Am, am I, you know, am I finding humor? And I'm facing the world with courage, um, gracefully, you know, and with dignity. Um, and so that she's very much still, to this day, my role model. Well, what was formulating in my mind as you were sh sharing that was that Adrian had a great role model. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Andrea, this is such a great conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate all the great shares you did, your willingness to be vulnerable. And I, um, I think your message is going to resonate with so many people. And uh, I wish you all the best um, with the endeavor of Cancer University. I think what you're doing is amazing. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.